And if you can, please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read the first 11 verses this morning, and we've been going through Philippians throughout the last few weeks uh, that I've been preaching, and we are now getting to the second half of the book. Um, uh, new themes, new, new things that, that Paul wants uh, the church of Philippi to know, that we need to know. So let's, uh, we'll read through verse 11. So we'll begin at verse 1 of chapter 3, reading through verse 11, and I ask that you pay careful attention to God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to bless the reading of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you now to be filled by your uh, truth, God, to be filled by your word uh, through your Holy Spirit. And God, we know that it is just mortal men who uh, have the task to proclaim your word, but God, we ask uh, through the power of your Spirit uh, that you seal to our hearts um, the truth about Christ, about uh, the blessings of being in him. God, open our hearts and our minds, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. as I said, here in chapter 3, Paul moves into the second half of his letter as he begins in verse 1 with finally, or literally, that could read, for the remainder. And here in this section, Paul begins with a warning for the Christians in Philippi, and that's in verse 2. But before that, he begins in verse 1 by telling them to rejoice in the Lord. It's something that if you've read the book of Philippians or if you've been with us in this series, that's somewhat of a theme throughout the book. And we have talked about the biblical concept of rejoicing. And Paul, when he says it in verse 1, kind of comes off as a command. He commands them to rejoice, which might seem kind of strange because, well, how can you command someone to be joyful? What if you don't feel like rejoicing? You're still supposed to rejoice. And we've talked about that. That the joy Paul is encouraging is not dependent on circumstances. Right? We've said that multiple times. That joy is not the same thing as happiness. You can still have joy 
even in unhappy circumstances. And the reason, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, is because joy is the result of a thankful spirit. You have joy when you're content, namely when you're content with what the Lord has done. When you focus on that, you can have joy. And the thing to remind ourselves is that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what you're going through, we Christians always have something to be thankful for, even if life is hard, even if it's difficult, even if there's some area in your life that you don't like, it's not going well, you still have reasons to be thankful, like for our redemption in Christ. That is true no matter what you're facing, so you can be thankful for that. Or the fact that we have the Holy Spirit at work within us, or that we have access to God's word, to his truth, or that we have the fellowship of believers to enjoy. So even if life is hard, like it is for Paul, right? he's in prison, we always have the ability to rejoice. And whether you choose to or not, that's up to you. You can choose to let your circumstances turn you bitter and angry or depressed and anxious, or in the midst of all of it, you can choose to focus on what God has done for you. So Paul begins this last section reminding them of their duty to rejoice in the Lord. And in the second part of verse 1, Paul says that to write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Now, I take that to be Paul talking about truth. So truth generally and truth specifically. So to write the same things, what he's written about to them so far, about the truth of Christ, about our duty to respond to Christ. So generally, but also specifically, about our duty to rejoice in the Lord. That is true. And Paul is saying that's safe for them, for us. And really, like I said, he is saying that truth is safe for them. Now, what does that mean? We might could expect Paul to say it's comforting for you, but no, he says safe. I think what that means is that the truth is a safeguard against folly. So knowing the truth about God, knowing the truth about sin, knowing the truth about what Christ provides, having the truth about how we are to orient ourselves in the world that guards us against folly. It's not just a nice thing. Truth safeguards you. And that's why Proverbs, right? Throughout Proverbs, it's always telling us to get wisdom, to get insight, to get understanding. It's akin to having truth or knowing truth. Like in chapter 4 in Proverbs, it says, Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. Knowing truth, right, it's akin to having wisdom, it protects you. It guards you against folly. That's what Paul is saying. And so what that also means from the flip side is that when truth is abandoned or when truth is set aside or when it's manipulated or when it's watered down, that's when folly creeps in. And what does folly do? Sin. It pulls people away. It destroys. And it feels like that if there was ever a time 
that we need to recover truth for our own safety, it's now. Because much of our culture, and you know this, this is not a surprise to you, much of what our culture says, what they say is right and wrong, much of our, what our culture values, tells you how to be, is built on lies and deception. Most of our culture's morality is folly, masquerading as wisdom. And in places like politics, or in the media, or in Hollywood that we love to consume so much, it seems like now they're not even trying to hide it. Just blatant lies everywhere. So, did you know that the state of California, I just found, about this, found out about this this week, the state of California is trying to pass a bill that reduces the punishment for adults who have sex with kids. They're trying, literally, to normalize pedophilia. Well, how did we get there? How did we get to this point? Well, when truth is abandoned, it exposes us. When the truth about marriage, when the truth about sexual love is abandoned, this is what you get, eventually. And people, our children, are literally put at risk. Because that's what you get when you abandon truth. And our culture no longer cares for truth. Sin, not sin anymore. Being a man or woman, that no longer has any meaning. Marriage isn't really marriage. Education isn't education, it's indoctrination. It's folly masquerading as truth. And it's easy to point the finger out there. But it's happened in the church as well. In fact, I believe that it started in the church, and our culture has just followed suit. When we abandon the truth, when truth can be whatever we want it to be, we open ourselves up to all kinds of folly, namely all kinds of sin that is no longer called sin. And that's why Paul says in verse 1, it's safe for them to hear the truth. It guards them. And they need to hear it over and over again. That's why the Proverbs say, wisdom guards you. And in verse 2, Paul has some pretty harsh things to say about people who distort the truth, who abuse the truth about God and about Christ. Look at verse 2. Paul has three warnings, three lookouts. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the, literally, the bad works people, and then look out for the mutilation or the mutilators. Right, that's in verse 2. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Who is he warning against? Right, truth safeguards you. You need to hear the truth over and over and over again. And as you do, watch out. Oh, what are we watching out for? Well, I think that his continued discussion in verses 4 through 7 about himself, namely about Paul's ability to boast in the flesh, I think that gives us a clue to who these mutilators are, these dogs, these people of evil works. He's talking about what we call Judaizers. Not sure if you've heard that term. But Judaizers were Jewish Christians who were teaching and preaching that Christians had to become Jews as well. Now, a Judaizer is different from a Jew. Not all Jews were Judaizers. So Paul was a Jew but he wasn't a Judaizer. And the Judaizers were Christians, you can think of it this way, 
They had a yeah, but when it came to Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, but if you want to be a true disciple of his, then you have to become an observant Jew. You have to keep the ceremonial law. Namely, you have to get circumcised. That's what these people were preaching. And it's what Paul condemns in Galatians. Paul says that the church in Galatia had been bewitched by people who came in and added to Christ and the gospel. They were saying these Gentiles, they needed to be circumcised. They needed to become a Jew. And Paul is clear throughout Galatians that you don't have to become a Jew to be a member of Christ's family. And Paul says that the people who are saying that, Judaizers, they are distorting the gospel. In fact, they're preaching another gospel, and that they are anathema, or that they are accursed, meaning it's really bad to do that. And that's who Paul's talking about in verse 2 here in Philippians. And we know that because he compares these people, these dogs, these evildoers in verse 2, he compares them to himself if he were to boast in the flesh. So, You shouldn't boast in the flesh like these people do. It distorts the truth. It distorts the gospel. Because this flesh, if you look at verses 5 and 6, that Paul's talking about isn't so much sins of the flesh as as we commonly think of it or as the Bible talks about in some ways. This flesh here is in reference to his Jewish heritage. That's what he's describing in verses 5 and 6. He's a proud member of God's ancient people. He's able to trace his lineage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin. He's blameless according to the law. All of that would have been very impressive to a Jew. That's putting confidence in the flesh. And that's what these Judaizers did. If you really wanted to be a part of the Messiah's family, then you had to become Jewish. That was most important. But the point is, that's not true. You don't have to become a Jew. So these people here are abusing the truth. They are distorting the truth. And the effect is that it pulls people away from Christ. And that's a bad thing. So what does Paul call such people? Well, he calls them dogs, which would have been incredibly insulting to a Jew. Dogs back then were not fluffy, cute pets. They were wild. They were ferocious, scavengers, a little better than rats. But even more insulting than just calling someone a dog Dogs were kind of symbols of being unclean. Right? Jews would often retur- refer to Gentiles, right, the uncircumcised pagans, as dogs. And now, Paul is calling these Judaizers dogs. Right? These people who took being clean, the ceremonial law, took that very seriously. It's very insulting what Paul's saying. And then he calls them evildoers, or as we said, the bad works people. Again, incredibly insulting. Right? These Judaizers, these people who say you have to become Jewish, they are obsessed with good works. That's what Paul says about himself. Blameless. That's what they promoted. Good works, works of the law. And now Paul's telling them that they are the evildoers. But even worse than that, Paul calls them mutilators. Now what is that in reference to? Well, the Jews were pushing circumcision... They thought that they were the circumcision party. They think that circumcision guarantees them something from God. That's why they're telling other people to do it. But Paul says, 
that their circumcision is no better than the pagans who mutilate their own flesh for their false gods. Like in 1 Kings 17, the prophets of Baal who cut themselves as they are sacrificing to their false gods. It's part of their worship. Blood gushing everywhere. That's what these false teachers are. In essence, they're prophets of Baal. So the very thing that these Judaizers think marks them for God, circumcision, is really a mark of their idolatry and their condemnation. Paul says that they think they are the circumcision, but really they are just mutilators of the flesh. Because in verse 3 he says, For we are the circumcision. We who worship Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They think they are, and yet it is no better than pagan, idolatrous mutilation. So, verse 2, that's what Paul thinks of those who distort truth. And I wanted to talk a little bit about circumcision here, because I think we learned something about the symbolism of it. But instead, I want to ask question, was it nice of Paul to call these people these names? Was it nice? Well, it certainly, as we said, would have insulted them. They would have been enraged to hear it. Is Paul being mean? Should a Christian really stoop to this level of name-calling or mocking Aren't we supposed to love everyone? Aren't we supposed to not be judgmental? Isn't God the judge? I mean, these are people he's talking about. It seems like Paul violates the one remaining virtue that we have in our society, being nice. Aren't Christians supposed to be nice? Well, if you read through the Gospels, John the Baptist did this type of thing. He called the Pharisees a den of serpents. Serpents long being associated with the devil. That wasn't very nice. Jesus, he calls Herod a female fox. That's not very nice. Plus, the whole chasing people and whipping them. Nice people don't do that. But I think Paul's language here in verse 2, I think it tells us something important about our role when it comes to truth. Because, again, I'm going to say something that you all know. This is not new. Because names are important. Calling something the right name correctly identifies that thing. To identify something correctly, to be able to see what it is, you have to use the correct name for it. You have to call things what they are. I don't get to redefine words or names of things. I don't get to identify something as whatever I want it to be. Names mean something. And identifying them correctly, truthfully, is important. How else can you know what a thing is? And that's what Paul's doing. He is correctly identifying these people. And while it might not be nice, it shows us that being truthful is more important than being nice or being politically correct. Right? You notice that word. You might be politically correct, but that doesn't mean you're correct. It doesn't mean you're correct according to the truth, according to reality. 
You're just correct according to politics. It's important to call things what they are. So, for instance, I won't, you can't say that a man in a dress is a woman because he's not, and that's violating the name of the thing. Or you can't say, you can't say this, that homosexual marriage is marriage. You can't say that because it's not. Or that the denigration and objectification of women through pornography, through music, TV, whatever, you can't say that that's really empowering for women. Because it's not. And just because I want it to be doesn't make it so. And like Paul, we have to be willing to call things out, to speak the truth, even if it hurts people's feelings. That's what Paul does. He refuses to call these Judaizers anything but what they actually are. Idolaters. Dogs. People who are trying to pull people, other people away from Christ. That's who they are, and that's what it needs to be called. And again, this goes back to verse 1 about being truthful. Calling things what they are is a safeguard for us. Because, as one pastor put it, all kinds of sins are covered up when we refuse to identify them correctly. So, sin begins to take over when we don't call it sin. And the church loses its battle against sin when we no longer call it out. You have to identify the error as an error. And when you take that away, when you take truth away, when you stop calling things what they are, even if it's mean, even if it's hurtful, even if people exclude you, when you do that, you open yourself up to sin, folly, and ultimately destruction. And, again, we live in a time where names mean nothing. Or they can mean anything, which is the same thing as meaning nothing. You can identify as you like. And our children are being taught that from the earliest of ages, through the education, the entertainment that they consume. And part of the point is the church has put up with that for far too long. We need to learn a lesson from Paul to call things what they are, to call out folly, lies, deception. The church doesn't need to be nice anymore. Right? These Judaizers are hurting Christ's people. They are the enemy. People who prey on God's family, who prey, and distort the, prey on and distort the truth with folly and lies. That is wicked, and it needs to be called out as such. Part of the point here just the first two verses, is that we need to start calling sin out for what it is. Remember, that's what Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do when he comes into the world. Like John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin righteousness and judgment that's what the Holy Spirit does now how does he do that how does the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin Well, by God's word through the people who are indwelt by him the church 
the church with God's word is how the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we do that by calling sin what it is, by calling out folly and untruth. And that's what Paul is doing. Now, kind of a side note or maybe an application of this. Um, let's bring it more personal. Right? We can call out what homosexuality. We can call out the sins of the world, political deception. But before you can do that, before we as a church can call out the lies and the sin of the world, that has to be done in our own lives. We have to begin calling our sin out for what it is. So kind of an application is don't think you can call out the sin of the world or in the church if you do not do it in your own life. If the church individually, collectively, is not calling out her own sins, then our witness is lost when it comes to calling out the sins of the world. And think about that from your personal standpoint. Because you're all too aware that we have areas in our life, you could probably think of a few right off the top of your head, things we do, patterns of thought, that we will excuse away. Or that will act like it really isn't sin. Or it's just part of my personality. But there are sins in our lives that we know of. And we can call those out, and we will, and that's good. But then there are those things that we've convinced ourselves are not really sin. Where we act as if our anger, that wasn't really anger, or it was justified because of what happened to me, or that your half-truths, it's not really lying, just didn't say everything. Or, that wasn't gossip, that wasn't slander, I was just telling the person what happened. Or maybe it's lust. Maybe you don't go to hardcore pornography sites, but you definitely look at pictures or videos of women that are inappropriate. Maybe on social media or TV. You lust after women all the time in your heart, but I don't act on it. Or maybe it's idolatry. Maybe your job, your career, Maybe it's your family and your children. Maybe it's your need to be entertained, your leisure, your comfort. Maybe that's the God you serve. Maybe that's what you spend most of your time sacrificing to. But that's not idolatry. That's just what I'm passionate about. Well, maybe. We all have ways of disguising our sins as not really sin. And the point is that you cannot repent from sin until you are willing to call it what it is, to be truthful about it in your own heart. Paul is not afraid to call these enemies of God what they are, and we need to learn to do the same, both outwardly when it comes to the culture, the church, and inwardly in our own hearts. And then quickly, in verse 3, Paul counters these Judaizers with who the true children of God are. Who is the real circumcision party? And it has nothing to do with the flesh, as Paul understands it. Nothing to do with heritage or anything like that. Verse 3, it's those who are worshiping God in spirit. Those who are led by the Holy Spirit 
to worship God. That is the real circumcision party. Because Paul's clear in verses 4 through 7 that if anyone had reason to boast, if anyone could claim any kind of righteousness, any kind of justification, then it would be Paul. Look at all the boxes that he checks Checks in verses 5 and 6. You read through that. A serious Jew reading through that. Well, that's quite the resume. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right, when they go into the temple to pray. And what is the Pharisee's prayer? It's basically his spiritual resume. Look at all that I do. Look how holy I am. And anybody that looks at the Pharisee concludes that this guy, he must be righteous. He must be justified. Paul has a spiritual resume like that Pharisee. And yet, in verse 7, Paul says, he counts that all as lost now. That which he regarded as so important is now forfeit. He says that it's lost three times in these verses. All of these benefits of the flesh, he counts as nothing. He throws them away. Why? Well, when it comes to the knowledge of Christ, there is no comparison. Knowing the truth, namely knowing the truth about Jesus, surpasses anything that Paul could ever have achieved. And it's this reason, like what he says in verses 8 through 11. It's because of this that Paul can say, rejoice in the Lord. He's in prison, rejoice in the Lord. Or that his death is really gain. He can say that because he has Christ. He's in Christ. He has the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And then he ends, verse 11, he has the knowledge and the power of the resurrection. And not just the knowledge and power. He gets to share in that resurrection. And the question for us is, what else do we need in order to be thankful? Or in order to be able to rejoice in the Lord? What else, what other motivation do we need for putting our sin to death? Look what Christ provides you in verses 9, 10, and 11. That is just as true of you as it is of Paul. And when you see it, when you believe what Christ provides, then you can, as Paul says, you can count everything as loss. You can actually share in his sufferings with him, as he says in verse 10. You can, as Jesus says, deny yourself and follow him. We can have that response when Christ is everything for us. That's what Paul is saying here. Christ is all you need. And if you have him, no matter what your circumstances say, no matter what your bank account says, if you have him, you have everything. To know him and to know the power of the resurrection that you will share in, that is all you need. And brothers and sisters, that is true. Christ is truly all that we need. So put your hope and your trust in him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the splendor, the majesty, uh, that it is to know um, Christ, to be known by the Lord Jesus. God, we ask that that truth, these truths, never become stale to us. They never lose uh, their flavor um, in our lives and in our hearts. God, that we can um, face 
the road that you have set before us, however dark it may be, we can face that road with joy and with thankfulness, God, because we are in Christ. We, are, we share the power of his resurrection even now. God, we thank you for your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.